I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbein and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. We're two siblings who love to talk about our childhood and nostalgia and how it shaped us into the people we are today. Who are pretty fun, if I do say so myself. Welcome to How Did We Get Weird. Jonah, I was thinking about when I used to live in Chicago and you used to come visit me for some honestly pretty epic trips. Yeah, I sometimes would come through with my band and then sometimes I feel like I would just come through to visit you. And I remember at one point you had a roommate, our friend, and I think maybe a friend of our guest today, David Lewis, would go and we were like obsessed with this guy he lived with because he had like a really good video game collection or something. Right. My first roommate, Don, Yes, you guys are really obsessed with. And I was like, you're here to kind of like hang out with me. Yeah. You guys are really obsessed with him. Speaking of David Lewis, very cool friend of yours before I even moved to Chicago, he let me stay with him never having met me because you're my brother. And he was just like a sister of Jonas is a sister of mine. Yes. So we used to come through, you know, we've talked about in the podcast, you used to open up for us at the Empty Bottle. Yes. When my band would come through. Yeah. I would come see your comedy shows. Yeah. So I feel like Chicago is always, you know, been a fun place for us to hang out, especially obviously they have a huge comedy scene there that you were very involved in. And the Empty Bottle, huge music scene. We really explored the arts of Chicago. Yes. And another big part of Chicago now is Lollapalooza. Today's guest, you may not remember, but we got 
brunch with him. Brunch with him. Before Lollapalooza one year. Uh-huh. This had to have been a very long time ago. I can't remember exactly where. With Dave Lewis and his family, I think. I was going to say, I think it was in Logan Square that we got brunch. I can't be totally sure. I don't know. I think the listeners would like to know exactly where we got brunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the listeners, I'm sure, are just dying to know where we got brunch. But yeah, I think this is a great segue introducing today's guest. He's a musician best known for his work as a frontman for Death Cab for Cutie and the Postal Service. You may know him from his solo releases. Or if you're a really hardcore fan, you might know him from his side project, All Time Quarterback. And, you know, as stated just now, we also got brunch with him once. A lot of blues, I feel like me and Vanessa run into this person inevitably once every five years. Yes. Let's give a warm welcome to Ben Gibbard. How's it going, you guys? Good. How are you? How's it going, Ben? Do you remember having brunch with us before Lollapalooza? I believe was <laughs> my old girlfriend Joan with us as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I do. Yeah. And David Lewis is an all-time great. I believe he's in Finland. He's in Finland. Yes. I believe you're correct. We DM every once in a while on the gram. I'm fascinated with people who leave American cities and become expats and go to other places and just, you know, immigration, people moving around, living other places is such a, it's just always been a part of how people kind of travel and live. But the idea of leaving Seattle and moving to anywhere else at this point just seems incredibly daunting. Like I wouldn't even know how to do it. It would would seem like a lot of work. Yeah. You hear a lot of people saying it around like elections. Like if this happens, (laughs) yeah, that's true. I feel like that people don't generally follow through on that. Yeah. I don't think anybody follows through on that. (laughs) It's it's one of the the weakest threats that one can make. I don't know who they're trying to threaten with that, you know? Right. Do people on the right threaten to move as well? I think this is really just a liberal thing. I think it's people on our side of the aisle that threatened to move often. That's a good question. Where would people on the right move? I think the people on the right are more into like states seceding or something. Right. That's a good point. Maybe that's more their thing where like, we're just going to make Texas its own thing. At this point, Texas kind of is its own thing, right? I mean, they basically have their own laws now. So totally, I guess maybe Texas is a destination. But yeah, I can't imagine when Biden was elected, there was somebody, a Trump supporter who was like, I'm moving to Canada. (laughs) Liberal country. I mean, do you feel (laughs) like as a musician, like obviously Death Cab did that Georgia EP around the election 2021. Like, do you feel like you become kind of more politically involved with the band as you've gotten older? I think certainly in relation to the very early years, I think in the first four or five years of the band, we maybe I can I'll just speak for myself. I think I was so single minded about wanting to do band things and I didn't really read the paper. I didn't pay attention to politics. I just was singularly focused on music and the culture of indie rock and making records and everything else. But you get older and you kind of start to open your eyes a bit. But I think that we've always just maintained a very clear lane of, you know, making voter registration, voter rights kind of our perennial issue. I think we're constantly being pulled in so many directions politically. And there's so many, of course, noble causes to support. But I think sometimes when you're trying to be all things to all people, the message and the sincerity gets diluted a bit when you're bouncing from one cause to another all the time. So we've always maintained a pretty surgical focus on registering people to vote and any issues that relate specifically to voter rights. Definitely. And so speaking of the early days, I was telling you before, I found this interview that I did with you. Oh my gosh. The Forbidden Love EP has just come out. And that photo looks like I'm falling backwards into a chair or something. Is that, <laughs> yes. that is quite a pose I'm kind of. Yeah. I mean, all these photos are, are pretty incredible. Yeah. But you know, what's so funny about this interview is first I ask you, who are you guys and what is your function in Death Cab for Cutie, which is like a very weird way to open an interview. What year is this from? This is from my old zine Law of Inertia. I think this came out in 2001. Okay. But what I think is really interesting is this was kind of 
pre-internet. So like you would just hear about stuff that happened, but you don't really know what you're talking about. And so my first question to you, Ben, is first off, why did you have to cancel part of your tour? I heard a rumor that one of you had food poisoning, (laughs) 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 which is like... I couldn't look it up. I was just like, someone was like, I think Death Cab canceled the show. And it turns out it was true, right? You got food poisoning on this tour with Pedro the Lion in like 2000 or something. 2000. Yeah, actually, at the time, I was vegan from about 94 to 2001. And this was a time that trying to be vegan on tour was nowhere near as easy as it is now. I mean, now, you know, you pull out your iPhone and go, where's the Whole Foods? Yep. Where's the health food store? And When you were in the middle of the country in 2000, you know, trying to find anything that didn't have meat or dairy on it left you at Taco Bell at two in the morning getting bean burritos with no cheese or stopping at grocery stores and trying to cobble together some kind of meal. We were in a van. We didn't have a fridge, right? So we couldn't hold food. So I was very malnourished and not taking quite great care of myself. And I would just kind of get sick and then just nosedive into this level of exhaustion that was kind of terrifying, actually. Wow. So on that tour with Peter the Lion, I'd gotten food poisoning at a pizza place in Minneapolis, which will go unnamed. Uh, very popular. <laughs> it's delicious. I've had it since then. It did not make me sick. But I just nosedived for about two weeks. It was really difficult for me to even like stand, which is wild to wow. say now. And so I flew home from somewhere on the East Coast and then picked up the tour, I believe, in San Diego or something like that. Wow. So the rumor was true. Jonah, do you remember the time that you got food poisoning in New York and you felt so bad and I came to your place and I kind of like took care of you and we watched Up? We watched a movie Up, yep. And you got really emotional watching that beginning montage, which everyone does. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I was already feeling really bad and then I was like, oh, this movie will make me feel better. And I just had this, yeah, really visceral, emotional reaction. It was I was so very vulnerable cute. at the time. Jonah goes, it's so sad. I still remember you saying that because I hadn't seen you like that, you know, probably since you were a kid, but you got better. You both did. Both did. Yes. <laughs> and then, Ben, in this interview, you also say, I asked, If any major labels have approached you and you say there's no reason for a band like us to go to a major label other than just ruining everything we've worked for until this point, (laughs) which I found very funny. I know. As they say on the Internet, there's always tweet, right? There's always a tweet. (laughs) Every indie rock band or punk band ever (laughs) has a quote like that saying that they'll never sign to a major label. I think my response to that all these years later would be it's very easy to take a hard stand on something. When nobody is offering you an alternative. <laughs> totally. Right, right. I remember in the 90s, a lot of people saying, like, I would never sell a song to a commercial. I would never use my song to sell a product or something like that. And it's like when you're never given the option otherwise, it's a very easy stance right. to take. But I think also, you know, we found ourselves, as did a lot of bands of our ilk in the 0304 period, in the midst of this kind of cultural shift where all of a sudden this music that had been underground and kind of a connoisseur's music all of a sudden became as, I wouldn't say mainstream with a capital M, but like a lowercase mainstream. And all of a sudden bands like us and other bands of our kind of world, all of a sudden were faced with opportunities that we never thought we'd have. And we also strangely had leverage at that point too. When we signed to Atlantic, we were coming off of transatlanticism and having sold almost a half million copies at that point. So we had a lot more leverage than I think we ever would have had if somebody would have come to us in 2001, right? But at that time, you know, there were no A&R guys or women showing up at our 
shows trying to sign this little band from Seattle. And by the way, this is not me like trying to like call you out 20 years later or anything. <laughs> I, I just thought it was funny. Oh, I, I absolutely, I absolutely <laughs> know that's the case. It would be hilarious if you were though. <laughs> yeah, it would be <laughs> This so whole funny. podcast was a ruse just to like <laughs> yeah. give me a gotcha moment that I sold out 20 years ago. <laughs> yes, yes. Our iHeartMedia podcast is totally going to just call you out for leaving Bar City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I ask a question? And this is going to sound, I don't mean to derail us, but I always think of like Atlantic and companies like that. You know how like you see in like movies and TV, like it'll be like a big executive who's like, I'm maybe stealing some of this from that episode of Saved by the Bell where this act attack gets famous, but where it's like a big executive who's like, we love your guy's sound. It's like someone in a suit and they're like, you guys have everything going for you. You're hip, you're cool. Like you got to sign with us. Is that what it was like? <laughs> you know, I wish it was. We took meetings at pretty much every major label at that point. I wouldn't say there was a bidding war going for the band, but there was definitely a lot of interest. And I'm sure. We definitely kind of came face to face quite literally with some of the truly stereotypically mob-esque major label heads, which of course will go un unnamed. But I will say we, we went to breakfast of all things at Jimmy Iovine's house in 2004. And he did one of the most baller things I've ever seen. You know, Jimmy Iovine's like, a, you know, music industry legend. And, you know, he has us over to his house for breakfast, which is not like he's making eggs and we're hanging out, you know, in the breakfast nook. It's like it's outside and it's catered and they've got wow. people serving us and everything. And like, after about an hour of sitting there talking about music or really just hearing him talk about music, which was also kind of our experience of this major label musical chairs is you just get in a room and hear somebody talk at you for about an hour about their life, not really asking any questions about <laughs> uh -huh. what we were wanted to accomplish or anything like that, which was one of the many reasons we ended up where we did. He left us in his house. Whoa. He was like, I got to go, guys. Enjoy the rest of your breakfast. I got to go to this Grammy rehearsal or whatever and like left. And of course, there were people there to make sure we didn't, you know, run <laughs> ripshot over the house. Right. But I was like, that's a baller ass move where you can like leave strangers in your house. Yeah. And just go somewhere else after you've invited them over. You know, it'd be like if I had you guys over for dinner and then at like nine, I was like, well, guys, I'm out of here. I got to go to a show. Enjoy the rest of your dinner. <laughs> Hopefully we'll meet up later. It was crazy. And I was like, wow, that's the baller ass move right there. That's yeah, like crazy. that's not even rude. That's like just a whole other level. Oh, no, I, we didn't take it as rude at all. We're just like, wow, that's like, you can do that? I didn't know you could do that. There is a rude way of doing it, which is something that our dad does. They'll have like people over for dinner, our parents. <laughs> and when our dad wants like them to leave, he'll be like, not saying that he wanted you guys to leave, but when our dad wants he people to leave, he'll he be probably... like, I, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go to bed. You guys can just like turn off all the lights and close the doors. Behind <laughs> oh, my God. You guys, I wish I had the balls to pull something like that off. I, we have people over at our house and there is that moment where like I don't drink, but certainly if people are drinking. They lose track of time. Time. Totally. Totally. As a sober person, I always refer to myself as the keeper of the clock. Right. Right. I am acutely aware of how long we've been sitting in this bar because I'm not drinking. So when you leave and somebody's like, we just got here. It's like, we've been here for four hours, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And that happens when people come over for dinner sometimes and you're like, I want you to leave, but yeah. I can't make you leave. I want you to know, I'm sure it comes off rude to our parents, friends when my, like, I don't think he really gets away with it. Like, I think he gets away with it in the sense that they leave going like, that was kind of rude. <laughs> I suppose it depends on how many hints have been given though, right? Right, right. If, you know, the meal has been served, if there's dessert, dessert has been served. Coffee or after dinner drinks has been served. And then people are still 
pushing like a piece yeah. of you know tiramisu around a plate an hour and a half later, I think it's okay to go, hey man, it's time for you to go. It's you you gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, do you have like a line? Can't you be like, oh, I got like working on this song and I got to get up early and like, you know, like use like the artist thing. Yeah, I'm working on this song. I really got to go nighttimes when I get in my best lyrics or something. <laughs> this is a real gift you're giving me right now because <laughs> I've never played the card of the aloof artist because that's just not who I am. But this would be a way to get out of that, right? Yeah. Just to just to be sitting there and go like, you guys, I- I'm sorry. I've got this great idea for a song that's really going to help a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I got to go work on it. I'm sorry. And just like leave Rachel, my wife there with our guest and then just go to sleep. <laughs> Not even. Well, it's like when you work in the arts, people don't really understand what your day is like. Maybe that's when you work and you just could even start singing a little and they'd be impressed. And you just go like, well, the woods come back to the thing. And oh, that's a really good guys. I got to go do this. And then like, well, that's I guess that's <laughs> what it's like. I guess that's what it's like being a yeah. songwriter. Sometimes you just have to leave. In the middle of a dinner. And they'll go, Rachel, your husband, we don't even, uh, what a brain. <laughs> I actually saw this happen with Dave Perner once. Whoa. From Soul Asylum. I was doing a podcast with him and he was like waiting to go in to the studio and was like, had like a song idea and was with a guy and was like humming it into the like iPhone or something. But maybe he just wanted to like get out of a conversation with me or something. Who knows? We were just talking before this interview yeah. and he was like just coming up with ideas for songs. What's your process like? You have this very nice studio, obviously. Do you just like force yourself in there or do you get inspired or? I would take issue with very nice studio. This is a guest <laughs> room in my house. <laughs> this is just Same. a would be a bedroom. But for people who are listening, you know, Ben did this live from home series on YouTube where he performed songs. What was it once a week at first? Yeah. And then I did every day for a while at the beginning of the pandemic. And then it kind of titrated off it to kind of doing it like once a week and then once a month. And then I figured people were kind of not back to normal, but I think the initial freak out of what what the hell is going on had kind of worn off and people were ready to enter life in some small capacity. So so you know what the studio looks like if you've seen that. I mean, it's got a few more gold and silver records than most home studios, uh, I think. But... Yeah, a couple more than Jonah and I got. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go in there pretty regularly or what's your kind of process like? Yeah, we finished a record. So right now I'm kind of creatively drained. There's this kind of this like period after finishing a record or any kind of, I'm sure any kind of creative project where you put all this work into it and you're just kind of tapped. So I'm doing it less now, but yeah, during, you know, when I'm actively writing for something, I try to come in here, you know, for as many hours a day as it seems like functional. I'm usually good for about maybe three to four hours max of writing a day if on a good day. You know, I kind of find like if it's not happening, I'll usually just cut bait and do something else. I just try to keep cataloging ideas and I usually just try to write beds of music and then write to that. I wish I was the kind of songwriter that could just walk around humming something and like write a song just in my phone or something like that. But I've literally never done that. It's usually like I'm writing music and then I'm trying to kind of shoehorn words into that based on the the structure and cadence of the melody that I've written and things like that. I really enjoyed your minor threat cover of Filler. Also, that was very unexpected, but I thought that that was great. I mean, do you still listen to any of that old kind of punk stuff? Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, Minor Threat is one of my favorite bands of all time. And it's not that I have this encyclopedic knowledge or love of hardcore punk or stuff from that era. But I think there was just something about Minor Threat that was like strangely melodic. You know, it wasn't as if like Ian McKay was necessarily singing. You know, it's not like Big Star or something like that. But one of the reasons I, I felt it was so easy to kind of transpose a song like Filler into kind of a more piano-y kind of thing is like 
it just has a particular kind of rhythm to it and just feel just, and afterwards when I released that song, I, I think I initially just put it out on SoundCloud or something. Michael Azarad, the writer reached out to me and was asking something like if I had heard Ian's original version of it, I was like, well, no, how, I don't know why I would even know that. And he's like, well, no, like apparently he wrote a lot of those songs on piano. Really? Oh. I never knew that. Allegedly. Yeah. That's what Michael told me. So. Okay, cool. But yeah, thank you for saying that. I originally played it. I was on a solo tour in 2012, I think. And I was trying to play a cover in every city that was specific to that city. And, you know, a lot of the people who probably are coming to our shows at that point or at this point probably are not super familiar with Minor Threat, even maybe in DC. But, you know, for the couple of people who are worried, they kind of got a kick out of it, I think. I think definitely. And, you know, someone else who we've had on the podcast who you've worked with a lot is Jenny Lewis. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, like when Jenny was on the podcast, we talked so much about her acting career and being in Golden Girls, all this stuff. I mean, is that something you ever talk with Jenny or is it more like music focused with you? You know, were you aware of all that stuff when you started working with her? Yeah. I mean, I remember when Rilo Kylie signed to Barsook in 2001 or whatever, and that first record came out, there was a lot of kind of talk around the proverbial water cooler at Barsook about how both Jenny and Blake were child actors, right? And I remember at the time thinking that was kind of odd. Mm -hmm. Please put this in the context of 24, 25-year-old snobby me. But I was like, what? <laughs> There's a on Barsook with actors in it now. Like, what's that all about? You know, and then, of course, I heard that record, Takeoffs and Landings, and I was like, oh, this record's fucking great. And, you know, from there, Jenny and I worked on the Pull Service record. And, you know, it, at this point, it's I'm, as I'm sure any kind of disciplines that people were in that were not music, the further you get away from them, the further you get away from that origin story, the less distracting and, you know, seemingly like, quote unquote, a conflict of interest it might be. Right, right, right. And then it becomes like a cool story. You know, it's like, oh, it's a, that's so cool that this now legendary singer songwriter, Jenny Lewis, was also a child actor. And I feel that. You know, I'm sure obviously she talked about it with you guys, but it seems as her friend that she's gotten a lot more cool with talking about it yeah. and posting about it than she was when she was trying to establish herself as a musician away from that. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't think she would be my friend if she wasn't cool with that stuff, because when we first met, I asked her so much about Trip Beverly Hills <laughs> and I continue to do that. <laughs> we'll come up with random questions where I'm like, how did you guys fake the thing when you walk across the tree? <laughs> I don't remember what her answer to that was. I have to ask her again. Do you remember, Jonah? I don't remember. But just to put you in Ben's state of mind, this interview we did, it says you're a big fan of Lawrence Ferenghetti, Kerouac and Lou Reed and Blake Schwarzenbach. Yeah. Is that still accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. I actually met Ferlinghetti in, I think, 2017 Wow! when Rachel and I, we did a tour of his, because he's a painter, I don't know, or he was a painter. And we did a studio tour and ended up purchasing one of his paintings uh, that we have in our oh house. My God. He was there and it was just, wow. I mean, I'd been wanting to meet this guy for years. And you know, at this point, he's in his mid, late 90s, was the sweetest, just most wonderful person. He was everything I would have wished he would have been. I think I pulled him aside at some point as where, you know, there are dozens, if not hundreds of paintings in this studio, like a lifetime's worth of work. And they're, you know, five and six, you know, stacked, parked, you know, in the, you know, leaning against walls. And I'm kind of wow. moving paintings and looking at other paintings. And I turned to him and I was like, is this weird for you that a stranger comes into your studio and starts just rummaging around. It, it would be as if I had let somebody into this room that I'm in and just opened up Dropbox and was like, yeah, I mean, just listen to whatever you want. And, you know, <laughs> right, right. You no, know, you can have it. How about the price or whatever? And he kind of smiled. I was like, oh, no, it's fine. So yeah, I was a life highlight to say the least. Amazing. Well, we'll be right back with Ben Gibbard after this break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, 
We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. And we're back. So, Ben, the last time I think me and Vanessa saw you was at Bonnaroo, and you were hanging out, I believe, with some professional basketball players. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, that was wild, <laughs> Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> Chris Bosch was backstage, and he was there with his wife. He was just kind of checking out bands, and he, I guess in his, the way he explained it to me, and <laughs> let me be very clear, while I would love to be friends with Chris Bosch, you know, we don't vacation together or anything like that. He, I guess in retirement or when he was kind of getting out of basketball, he started really getting into music, which is really interesting to me that music would not be something that you were into from a young age and you just kind of maintained a love yeah, of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm 34 and man, I, I just found out I love music. Yeah. I guess he was into our band. He was there to see some other acts too. And yeah, he was just the nicest dude. And like, you know, also very large, a very large man. Yes. I'm six feet, six one. And it's a crazy feeling to be that dwarfed by another human being, you know? Yeah. That's what I remember too, is like going over to you guys. And I was like, these are the tallest people I've ever met. <laughs> I think that day was also when we met Chance, the rapper, because he came back to say hi. Right. So anybody who was kind of strolling around our backstage area would have got the craziest idea of like what our friend group looked like, right? <laughs> like Chance the Rapper stopping by. Oh, Vanessa Bayer and Jonah Bayer are coming by. <laughs> oh, there's Chris Bosch just coming by to say hi. <laughs> like we, like I would have loved it if somebody next door had been like, have you seen who's hanging out at the Death Cab? <laughs> that's amazing. And so, you know, speaking of music, we spoke about music a lot, but you know, that's a good segue into our topic, which we wanted to talk about the idea of sort of taping music off the radio, which was a thing that 
like vegan food was not as widespread back then. You know, there were not streaming services. I mean, Ben, what are your kind of memories of recording things off the radio? So I grew up in Bremerton, Washington, which is a town that's like an hour's ferry ride west of Seattle. It's a little Navy town. Uh, My dad was in the military. Uh, We were kind of moved back and forth from there, but my parents inevitably uh, ended up settling there. We all did. Of course, I was there as well. And we moved back to Bremerton in 91, which was, you know, the year that Nevermind came out, Pearl Jam 10, Alice in Chains, Facelift, Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger. It, It was like the year that Seattle just exploded. So to be moving back from we were living in the D.C. area to move back to Seattle wow, and be a kid at yeah. 14, 15 years old and have all of this, this incredible music happening. You know, even though I was not necessarily a part of it, it gave me a, my first real sense of identity. Like, yes, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. This is the music. This is my music. And this is our region. And everybody else wants it now. And I'm back living here. And this is great. And of course, I loved all those bands. But I found myself gravitating a lot more to a lot of like the punk and indie stuff, local music that was happening coming out of Seattle or Portland or Boise, you know, at that time that was kind of, un, you know, a couple tiers below many tiers below the popularity of like the big Seattle bands that everybody knows. So living in Bremerton, the end, which is now a huge, massive commercial alternative radio station had just begun. And in its first couple of years before Clear Channel took over and before the homogenization of radio in this country, they played a lot of really left to center stuff. And the local shows, which were on, I think, Sunday nights, would just be all local bands like Hammerbox and Hazel and Tree People and on and on and on. These bands that people might know, but were really just underground indie bands at the time. So I would tape the entire show. Like I would just put 90 minute tapes in there and just tape the entire show. And then I would also go to my friend Craig's house who got a local college station called KGRG, which still is the Green River Community College Station. He lived in a valley. For some reason, he, he was the only one who could get this radio station, it, which was, you know, by, as the crow flies, 60 miles away. And we would just tape the radio. We would just tape hours of KGRG and then make mixtapes out of that. Wow. What was really interesting to me, too, is that, you know, if you tried to call your local rock radio station, like you're not going to get a person on the phone. You're not going to get the guy who's talking on the radio, he's not going to pick up the phone. It's just going to ring and ring and ring. But you'd call KGRG and like the DJ would pick up like KGRG. We want to hear like that, you know, that new Slint song. Okay, cool. I'll put it on next. Or what was that? song? <laughs> hey, you play the song three songs back that kind of had this like lyric and went like this. And he's like, oh yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was pitch blend or whatever. It's like, okay, cool. Thanks a lot. <laughs> like, so we would just tape the radio and then make mixtapes out of that because Living in a suburban town an hour outside of an, a real city, we didn't have real record stores. You know, we had Sam Goody. You know, we had like the warehouse. The, if you were looking for the new, I don't know what was even popular record in 1991, like a mainstream record, Boys to Men, maybe, I don't know. Like you're looking for something like that. Like, yeah, you'll find that at the right, Sam Goody, but right. you're not going to find the Dinosaur Jr. record you're looking for. You're not going to find Green Mine there. You're going to have to go to Seattle to get that. So this was the closest thing we had to kind of possessing the music that we wanted to possess. Yeah. So you have the cassette of the radio and then how do you make a mix of that? You need like another cassette player? I know how. Double tape deck, right? Double tape deck. Right. Running the radio into the double tape, you're recording that, okay? Right. Then that is your new master tape. You put that tape 
in the playback side and then you find the songs that you want there and you record them onto a new cassette. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I find so fascinating about, and I know cassettes are sort of making a comeback. Are they? Yeah. Bands are doing cassettes as a merch again. Ben, what are your thoughts on that? I think initially when cassettes started coming back, I was kind of a little bit eye rolly, like, God, this was a terrible format when it was the main format, you know? Right. But then I kind of dropped my audio snob mentality and go, you know what? I mean, if I really truly believe at this point that if anyone is interested in what is now kind of a uh, antiquated technology, like antiquated physical medium for music, I'm all for it. CDs, cassettes, LPs. I think there's something that we've lost in our conversion to everything being digital And that's that we are tactile beings and we like to hold things. I think the vinyl resurgence has been a perfect example of this. And it's it's frustrating when you're trying to press records now, which I'm sure maybe you're aware of that vinyl record plants, they used to be all over the country, all over the world. And that when vinyl was the dominant format, but slowly over the 80s, certainly in the 90s and aughts, a lot of these plants closed down. They were just left with kind of boutique pressing plants. Well, since the pandemic, even a little before, but certainly with the pandemic, people all of a sudden wanted records again, which is wonderful, but it's really put a crunch on the few manufacturers that still exist. But even having said that, it's really heartening to see young people wanting to have a physical copy of like the Billie Eilish record and reading the liner notes and looking at the photos and putting the record on a turntable, even if it's like a shitty Crosley or something like that. You know, I think that there's something really deep within our kind of beings that requires kind of we're tactile beings. And I'm glad that people are getting interested in these physical mediums again. So cassettes are like, yeah, you know, they're kind of, you know, I think it's cool. You know, we have a cassette deck at home. I was just listening to some old tapes yesterday and we've released some records on tape. So I don't know really what my point is here. I guess I'm I'm fine with it. Uh (laughs) One thing about cassettes that I think, especially making those cassettes like you're talking about is like, Ben and Vanessa, I'm sure you had these moments where like if a song gets cut off forever in your mind, it's cut off at that point. And then when you hear it like straight through, you're expecting it to stop in the middle. Did you guys have that memory at all? Oh, 100%. I spent a, like a long road trip in like 1997 with a copy of Jay with the Damages, Wrath of the Math, which is one of my favorite favorite records of all time, let alone like favorite hip hop records. And there's a song on it called Not the Average. And like it's three verses that are all these stories. And one of the last stories on the record is like something like, you know, he meets this girl at a club and she says, come meet me here. And I went to the building and I went up and I asked this guy, and then he just stopped. It's like, I don't know what happens to Tamika. What happens to j and Tamika? Like the story, what happened here? And it was only after years later, I got the record. I was like, oh, okay. That's how that story ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vanessa, do you remember that at all? Yeah, I remember taping songs off the radio and I would get so annoyed because they would like come in and do like some big like effect at the end where they'd be like, up next or whatever, you know? And I'd be like, oh, can't you wait until the end of the song to do this? But then... You're right, Jonah. There's something so crazy that happens where that's how you memorize the song then, where you're like, oh, at this point, a DJ comes in and says like, whoa, 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 what's up? Yeah. (laughs) I had a set that I taped off the radio. It was when the first Guns N' Roses record came out and then they put out GNR Lies. Remember Lies, which is like there was half acoustic stuff. Yep. And I was like super into that song, Patience. I thought it was great. I, I still do. I love Guns N' Roses. That is a good song. It's a great song, right? Yeah. And I remember like, oh, Patience is number one on like the request countdown. So I'm waiting for it. And then it comes on. I still remember this is like over 30 years ago. The DJ would have fans come and announce the song. 
And this woman just talked over like the first verse. She was like, I love Guns N' Roses. And, and like underneath it, it's like, say a prayer because I'm missing you. I'm like, God damn it. Oh, man. Of course, I didn't think to re-record Patience one of the other thousands of times it was getting played on the radio. Right. So for like the next six months until I got the actual tape of GNR Lies, I just had this woman like talking over the first minute of the song which is oh my god that sounds infuriating by the way upsetting video for me i think because doesn't he drive some woman off a cliff i think it's november rain no 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 no. that's different let's get in a fight about it right now in front of (laughs) no slash i think in november rain they have the wedding and then slash drives off a cliff with a girl the woman's like yelling at him in the car oh are you sure patience is i'm just like sitting around playing acoustic guitar okay no one gets driven off a cliff yeah they're in the studio and they're like and slash is playing acoustic guitar and he has a snake around his neck yeah yeah, like a live snake. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, I didn't even remember Slash. This is so rude. And if we ever have Slash on the podcast, I'll apologize. But I don't even remember really Slash's presence in November Rain. I really just remember Axel and Stephanie Seymour and the Rose thing at the end. Do you remember the guy jumping into the cake, which has become kind of a recent oh yeah mystery in the last couple months, maybe year? There's been people trying to kind of unpack the scene where a guy is jumping into the wedding cake. Yes. There's no other way to not be name droppy here, so I'm just going to do it. Please. Let's do it. So Duff McKagan lives in Seattle and we've become friends over the years. Whoa, cool. And when all this was going on, I was like, I have a direct line to somebody in Guns N' Roses. I can find out why somebody jumped into the cake. Yeah. And I called Duff and I was like, hey man, you know, I know this is a weird question, but like, you know, there's all this chatter about the guy jumping into the cake. Do you know anything about that? Can you like remember anything about that day and what that was all about? And I don't think Duff would mind me saying this on a podcast because he's been sober for a number of years. But he's like, oh, man, I was so fucked up back then. I don't I don't remember. <laughs> I hated videos and I don't remember why that guy was jumping into the cake. He's like, Duff, you're disappointing me, man. Like, yeah. you, were there. you were there. You know, it has been stipulated that a guest who we're actually about to have on the podcast, who is sort of a relative of Vanessa's Ricky Rackman was the cake person, but he says he wasn't. Oh, that's right. Yes, because, yeah, I remember reading that as well. They're like, that's Ricky Rackman, owner of the cat house. Right. Jumping into the cake. Yeah, not Ricky Rackman. It was just a guy with long hair, which is like, that could be probably anyone in LA at that time. Wow. Our friend Amber told me that you are also a big fan of music memoirs. Duff obviously has written a couple. Have you read any kind of good ones lately? I also am just, I talk about it a lot in the podcast. I will read any music memoir, even if it's a band I don't care about. Jonah reads everything. Like even music he's not interested in at all. We are the exact same way. I just recently read the latest Nico biography called You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, which was phenomenal. I'm a huge fan of Nico's. And one of the things I love about reading rock bios now is that in a YouTube world, you can reference all the things that they're referencing. So it'll be like Nico made this video with Iggy Pop in a field outside of Ann Arbor for a song on, I believe it was like Marble Index or whatever. And you're like, I'm reading the book. I close the book. I dial that up and I can watch this video or this live performance. They're referencing like this crazy thing happened at this live performance. Like, well, I can actually see it right now. Yep. So it adds this whole nother level of the experience. And then I'm also reevaluating all the records in real time. So in the book, when they're talking about the record Desert Shore, I can be like, oh man, that is a great record. And then put that on, listen to that for a couple of days until in the chronology of the book, they move on to the next record and I spend time with that record. So it's kind of a cool way to 
you know, re-interface with artists that you love or even artists that you don't care about. And, and by the way, that Nico book is fantastic and people should read. Okay. It's awesome. I'm going to check it out. But have you read Nothing But A Good Time, which is the oral history of hair metal? I got an advanced copy and I read it in like a week. Incredible. And even you know, that's a lot of music that I could not care less about. But it was also kind of fun to go back and like watch all these videos by these like hair metal groups that like not the big ones, but like the second and third tier ones. Yep. Wow, this was really a vibe. Yeah. Back then, you know, it was pretty serious vibe. As a fan of Vixen, I think I should read this book. Vixen is very represented in in this book. Yeah, a lot. They're in it a lot. I don't know if you read the Black Crows drummer, Steve Gorman's memoir, Hard to Handle. No, I haven't. Just like for me, these books are so fascinating because it doesn't matter how big your band is. They're all just so dysfunctional. These people have no idea how to communicate. And it's just these bands at the highest possible level just acting like 12-year-olds. It's just like, it's unbelievable just to read. Yeah. I think at some point during the pandemic, I I think Motley Crue has addressed this since then. But I remember I decided to reread The Dirt because I was like, I remember that book being kind of crazy and reading it. And it was like, wow, there are moments in this book that are like, it's just sexual assault. You know, and they're like talking about it like it was crazy, you know, and you're like, that's not fucking yeah. crazy. that is straight up sexual assault. Yeah. And what was even more kind of disturbing about it is like then I remembered reading it 20 years ago and being like, oh, man, this is crazy instead of. Yeah. And I talked to my wife about it and other people after I reread it. I was like, have you read that book recently? I remember that. And everybody I talked to was like, yeah, I remember it being like crazy, but not really having the, not so much the language, but the ability to kind of see some of that stuff for what it seemingly was, at least in the way it was described by them in their own book. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I talked to my wife about it and she's like, yeah, I'm also, I feel kind of gross that I read that book 20 years ago and thought like, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess in some ways that means that we have improved and evolved as human beings if we're able to, you know, see some of this stuff for what it actually is. Yeah, totally. Totally. And there is a photo book about Death Cab coming out as well. Is that true? Yeah. uh, Rachel was on tour with us for about five years off and on. And so when she came out on the first tour in 2015 with us, she was like, yeah, I'll come out on the road and I'll just take photos and you guys can use them for what you need or whatever. Kind of like this is how I'll pay my way, so to speak. And so she just has years of a brand of access that no one else would ever be able to have. So, you know, I'm biased, of course, like the book is about us and by my wife, but I really think it's an incredible piece of work. And I think it kind of shows a side of not only the band, but just what being on the road is like that you can only really get if you're that entrenched in it. I think a lot of times photo books about bands on the road are shot by people who come out for a couple of days and the band is kind of like right. mugging for the camera. Yeah. Like, Where's me cool backstage or like, yeah, this is just a lot of just the doldrums and kind of once the camera disappears, I feel that's where you get a lot of the best stuff. Yeah. Are there any shots of you and Chris Bosch or no? Sadly, no. No, sadly <laughs> not. Well, we'll be back with Ben Gibbard after this break. Oh, before we go, Don't Cry is a video with the cliff scene. So in case you're going to leave us a comment saying we got the video wrong, oh, it's not November don't rain. don't cry. I knew that it was like a slower song. And that's the one with Dude from Blind Melon, right, is in that video also singing back. Oh, I don't think I oh, knew that. Right. We're on the roof of that building. The building, yeah. And I remember when that video came out, I was like, I was like, why? Is, who is this other guy? Because <laughs> it was before the Blind Melon record had come out. Yeah, Shannon Hoon's. And I think that's the one where they famously have the Where's, where's Izzy sign. Yeah, I believe that's true as well. Yeah. We'll have to ask our cousin. We'll have to ask Ricky Rackman. And we'll be back with Ben Gibbard after this break. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Okay, and we're back. So, Ben, we're going to play a little game with you now that we like to call Yes, Nostalgia, otherwise known as Yes or Nostalgia. So in this game, we bring up nostalgic products, shows, etc. that are making a comeback. And if you're into them, you can give them a Yes-stalgia. Yes-stalgia. And if you're not into them, you can give them a Nostalgia. Nostalgia. Okay. So, Jonah, do you want to introduce our first topic? Yeah. So sometimes these are products. Sometimes they're a little more abstract. So this is something that went away briefly and is now back. American Airlines is bringing back alcohol and snack sales after a two-year hiatus. So just, you know, a little background. They're going to offer booze for purchase in the economy cabin again. This is happening on April 18th. They're going to offer beer, wine, and spirits. Wine and spirits will be $9 each, $8 for beer. And so they'll also be offering, you can buy snacks again. I guess you couldn't buy snacks. Right. So you can get those for 4 to $6. 
How do you feel about bringing back alcohol and snack sales or do you think we don't need them? So I would say yes to that. Yes, Nostalgia. I meant to say the whole word. Is that is that part of the deal? We would appreciate it, honestly. So yeah. Okay, so I would say yes, Nostalgia to that. If only because, you know, I don't drink anymore. I haven't for some time. So it would be very easy for me to just say like, why does anybody need to have a drink on a plane? Sure. But I think the larger issue is that if you're not serving alcohol on the plane, people are going to get hammered before they get on the plane. Right, right, right. I think people behaving badly on airplanes over the last couple of years is probably a function of a number of anxieties and other reasons, related reasons or unrelated reasons. But it seems like when you see like a shaky cell phone video of somebody acting poorly on a plane, it's usually like before the plane is taken off. Right. And it's probably because that person like went to the hotel bar and got hammered and then got on the plane and then decided to like, take issue with the mask mandate, (laughs) you know? Right. I think if we can kind of get to a place where, you know, this shouldn't be a flight attendant's job, but that a flight attendant is able to monitor someone's alcohol intake rather than just get somebody on the plane who's already fucked up and then have to deal with them, that's probably a better solution. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Vanessa, what do you think? Well, I have sort of a nostalgic, I guess, relationship with this because I think you sort of do what you were raised to do. So like when we were growing up, our parents never bought stuff on planes. I don't know if you like remember this specifically, but like as an adult, it's always so crazy to me that people like buy all this wine and stuff on flights because it's just like something that we didn't do. Like probably our dad didn't want to pay for it. Not burning him, but you know, it's marked up. Okay. And so even like when I stay at a hotel, like I feel like it's so crazy to like eat the food in the mini bar. That's like just stuff that we didn't do growing up. So I'm thrilled for people that this stuff is coming back. I'll give it a yes, nostalgia, but I also feel like I never buy that stuff because I was just like always kind of taught that like you take the food that's like given to you on the plane if the flight is long enough and basically like, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Yeah. (laughs) Which is something our parents have never said to us, but like just that you don't buy that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think I'll give it a nostalgia too. I think it's fine if if you want to pay $8 for a beer and a flight. I mean, that's your call. Keep it under control. But I agree with Ben. I think like the people that are really causing the problems, probably this doesn't have a big effect on it. You know, it's fine, but it's, yeah, I'm not going to go on there. I mean, I'm trying to get in and out of the airport as cheap as possible. I'm checking the least amount of bags. Right. I'm hoping they don't weigh it. I'm trying to get through cutting as many corners as possible. There's no way I'm going to start splurging on the plane. Okay. So yes, nostalgia, but kind of mixed with some tones of nostalgia. Okay. (laughs) So our second topic is Dunkin' Donuts (laughs) is bringing back their iced coffee flavored jelly beans. Now, (laughs) last Easter at Frankfurt Candy's Dunkin' iced coffee flavored jelly beans were so popular that they sold out. Fortunately, the company has brought them back. So those of us who didn't get to try them can see what the hype is all about. The jelly beans come in six different flavors, including French vanilla, caramel, latte, butter pecan, toasted coconut, and hazelnut. Not only that, they come in a 13-ounce bag with a suggested retail price of $3.99. You get all the flavors on the website. Also, you can get them at CVS, Walmart, and Five Below while supplies last. Ben, what do you think? Yes, nostalgia or nostalgia for the Dunkin' Ice Flavor Jelly Beans? I'm going to say nostalgia primarily because I'm a West Coast person and Dunkin' Donuts isn't on my radar. Right, right. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, look, I get that 
we develop relationships with bad food or bad coffee or whatever because it's formative to us. You know, if you're from Boston and you've been drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee and eating Dunkin' Donuts donuts your entire life, like you'll naturally have an affinity for them and you will imbue uh, quality and meaning into that experience that is based solely in your experience. But look, I'm here to tell you, like that coffee is horrible. It's it's really horrible. horrible. Yeah. Look, I get it. I'm in Seattle. I'm a coffee snob. Seattle coffee, blah blah blah. But I mean, it's really bad. And my, uh, Chris Walla, my old bandmate, had said at one point that the further north and east you move, what coffee loses in flavor, it gains in heat. <laughs> so like by the time you're in Boston, it's like you're getting like a 210 degree cup of coffee that. Once it cools down, you realize it's just coffee flavored water, you know, look, if this is something that people from the Eastern seaboard have some nostalgia for or places that have Dunkin Donuts and you grew up on it, like I'm not going to like try to tell you that it sucks. Although I guess I kind of just did. <laughs> we all have relationships to things of low quality because as we get older, we still maintain an affinity for it because they were important to us when we were young. Right. Yeah, they're nostalgic. Yeah. I have a follow-up question for you, Ben. I do too. I wonder if we have the same question. Well, I was going to say, Ben, you know, people may not know, you know, you run ultra marathons. Are you pretty healthy? Like, I don't know if you're sitting around popping jelly beans all day. Okay, I've... that was not my question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't have like a super sweet tooth or I don't eat a lot of fast food, not because I'm snobby about it. It just doesn't do much for me. But I do eat a lot of food. Okay. It's either like because I like eating a lot. So I started running longer distances so I could eat whatever I wanted or that I'm running long distances and it requires me to eat a lot more food than anybody else. Like the number of times that Rachel and I will like order something at a restaurant and we'll ask if that's a lot of food and they'll kind of give you that like, mm -hmm. like yeah. you don't want to be mean. And then you finish it. And then I've been treated like a child. We're like, I can't believe you finished all of I it. I know. <laughs> Still, people say that to me all the time when I'm eating at restaurants. And I'm like, don't say that to me. Yeah. <laughs> Guess you liked it. And you're like, yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> Boy, I've never seen anybody be able to do that. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. I ran 30 miles today. I'm going to eat what I want. <laughs> yeah. You just shut up. <laughs> Vanessa, what was your question for Ben? <laughs> My question was going to be when you were talking about like moving back to Seattle when you did and all these bands blowing up. I feel like that was also around the time that Starbucks really blew up in Seattle. Like, was Starbucks just like the coolest thing in the world? And, you know, what are your thoughts about it now, I guess? <laughs> we moved from the Seattle area to Illinois when I was 10. This is like 86, I think. My mom would order beans from the one Starbucks in Seattle. Because at the time, there was like one. Wow. High place market. I think there was only one. If there was more than one, it was just in Seattle. And she would order the beans from there. And, you know, of course, as the years progressed, Starbucks became the company that it is. And I think Starbucks gets a lot of flack. And I think it's unjust because what Starbucks did was they provided the common person with a vocabulary for coffee. Right, right. Nobody knew what an Americano or a latte or whatever it was, was until there was a Starbucks in your town and everybody was trying it. And right, that's true. A taste for it. And then also it's because of Starbucks that we have these second and third tier boutique roasters and coffee places now. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these places have been purchased by large corporations now, but there wouldn't be a sight glass or a blue bottle or, you know, a stump town or whatever. You, right. Right. That's true. There wouldn't be a Tim Wendelbo. There wouldn't be these like boutique high end coffee roasters now without 
the ubiquity of Starbucks kind of there being one in every town and people starting to realize that coffee could be more than just the pot at the truck stop, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I think you also dropped a little bit of knowledge on us in terms of I never knew why Pike Place Roast was the Starbucks roast, but it sounds like because a store was in Pike Place Market. <laughs> That's why. Yeah, Yeah. that's why. And it's also like now it's not by any means the best coffee that you can get in a city. But I remember touring in 98, 99, where once you left a city, you were drinking like truck stop coffee. Yeah. Yeah. If you asked me for an espresso, they looked at you like, right, like you were some kind of city slicker snob. And the fact that there are Starbucks all throughout, you know, the interior of this country now and other small roasters, yeah, small roasters, but other kind of chains that make what is passable, passable to good coffee. I mean, it, it's a huge step forward for versus where we were when we first started touring. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it sounds like in terms of the Duncan <laughs> <laughs> jelly bean flavored Jelly beans. That sounded like it was kind of a nostalgia for you. That's a hard no. It's only because I have no reference point for it. Right, right. You don't have a nostalgic connection to Duncan. Right. So when you were reading all about it, you could have been reading about anything. Yeah, it sounds like you were bored out of your mouth. I was bored out of my mouth. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this, kind of turning the tables a little bit. If there were Starbucks flavored jelly beans, would that change (laughs) things for you? And they came in like Pike Place Roast, Verona. Pumpkin Spice Latte. (laughs) Morning blend. These are like flavored things. These aren't all like coffee beans, right, Vanessa? Yeah, I'm saying if those flavors of jelly beans came out, would you go, I got to get a bag of these and really indulge before my next run? (laughs) I don't think I would. (laughs) The idea of a selection of jelly beans based off of like five or six various... (laughs) burnt Starbucks flavors. flavors that are like not that different from each other either. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. They, and they're all like, as I said, like all like it's a dark roast. It's like a burnt roast. Right. In my coffee snobbery, I like a really light roast, like a Ethiopian and like that, like a yogurt chef or something like that. Yeah. No, I don't think I would be running out the door for those. Okay. I hear that. <laughs> well, I'm going to give it a nostalgia just because, well, I don't know. I love jelly beans, which I recently discovered when we were filming this show and they had them at craft services. And honestly, I'll take like a Brock's old school jelly bean over a jelly belly any day. That's not to burn jelly belly. But honestly, one is like a true dessert and the other one's like a kid's game. Let's put the popcorn and the blueberry jelly beans together and make a blueberry muffin. It's like, I'd rather have a blueberry muffin, okay? And that's my rant about Jelly Belly. But um, (laughs) I'm going to give this a nostalgia just because I'm not interested. (laughs) Jonah, what about you? I have so many thoughts on this and I feel like this would actually be a whole other podcast. Could be us talking about coffee. I live in where there's a Dunkin' Donuts in every town. Right. I personally have emailed with the manager of our local Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) Multiple this times. Sounds very so Jonah. many times that they've actually stopped replying to me. Why were you emailing? Are you upset about something? Are you complaining? I was upset. They got rid of. They oh, had like Jonah. a fake meat sausage thing. They got rid of. I, you know, I asked about that. Found out it was more of a. The whole Northeast lost it. It wasn't this manager's <laughs> decision. So it felt a little stupid after that. I feel like they're really <laughs> understaffed. So it's like you know you're waiting in line. Basically, I took things into my own hands and got a home espresso set up. I'm loving it. I got some beans recently from Seattle, Cafe Vita. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, Great beans. I've been making my own, but I just, yeah, I don't want these jelly beans. I don't really want to have anything to do with Dunkin' Donuts at this point. I don't know if you saw, they just launched their own hummus. 
who who wants like who wants this Dunkin' Donuts hummus? Who's asking for this? I have a follow up question, which is sure. What's the mean age of people who start writing corporations or chains about your issues? Oh, well, <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there like an age where like because we would never have done this when we were 25, right? Uh, I don't know about Jonah. <laughs> Sadly for me, it's been going on for a while. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's something we talk about a lot in the podcast. Yeah, I feel like I got a problem and I'm going to just put it out there and see what happens. Well, Jonah has actually explored kind of two ways in for this because he used to like write to brands when he would like have an issue with a product and then they would like send him free stuff. Then he started writing to brands when he liked their product. Yeah. And he would become like an ambassador. Because I also didn't want to get anyone in trouble, but I also wanted to be like, I love this. And I'm sort of fishing like, if you wanted to send me a coupon, you know, if you know. And sometimes that works. And sometimes they will just very politely be like, we know what you're doing. We're not sending you anything. Thank you for your support. I don't know if Ben knows this, but you're a brand ambassador for Go Macro Bars. I got a few cases of Go Macro Bars about three years ago. I still bring it up all the time. Yeah, You know that, honestly, like, I'm not just saying this. That is like my go-to bar. Those things are the best. Ben, I guarantee you that you could be a brand ambassador for Go Macro. <laughs> I can hook you up after the podcast with my contact over there. I mean, I, I can also just buy them, you know? You can also just buy them. You can also <laughs> just buy them. But it's, it's like a game almost, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. In the ultra running world, there's not a lot of money in this sport. Not that if there was, I would be making any, of course. But ambassadorship is a really huge thing. It's like, it's a lot of small companies. Like this is a new energy gel or a new food thing, a new hydration vest, new shorts, new shoe company, blah, blah, blah. Sure. It always seems like the amount of work that would be required to be a brand ambassador for goo, let's say, would probably exceed, in man or woman hours, would exceed the cost of the gels that you got for free, right? Yes. Right, yes. right, right, right. Totally. We'll give you a box of these gels and you need to post 75 times about <laughs> why you like goo. It's like, you know, at a certain point, you're like, I, I, I'd rather just purchase the product. Totally. You know? Yes. But if it's a game, as it is for you, then it, it's enjoyable. How about go macro jelly beans? I'd try those. <laughs> Little chunks of peanuts in them. <laughs> exactly. All right. That's three nostalgias. Our last one is, this is an article from the Portland Press Herald I found. It's called, It's About Bloody Time. Let's Bring Back Brunch. And so brunch never really, I guess, went away. But this is an article about how there's all these places in the greater Portland area serving brunch, how brunch took a hit during the pandemic. A lot of spots closed permanently or ended brunch service, how it isn't really conducive for takeout. But despite the challenges, you know, new restaurants have cropped up, it says, and people are brunching again. Ben, yes or nostalgia on brunch. I feel like you must have talked to some of my friends maybe before this podcast, like research. Did not. I am a hard, hard nostalgia on brunch. Whoa, this is not what I was expecting. I loathe brunch as a concept. If we were getting to know each other and you guys were like, on Saturday, why don't we meet in front of this restaurant and we'll stand there with 50 other people <laughs> for an hour plus waiting for a table. And in that time, your blood sugar will drop to like precipitous levels. And you won't be able to actually concentrate on the interactions we're having because you're just going to be hawking tables, watching people camp out on their like mimosa for an hour after they finished eating. And then when you finally sit down, you're going to be so hangry that you're just going to hate eat whatever gets put in front of you and then just have blood sugar issues for the rest of the day. I would 
respond with like, well, then we're not going to be friends. Like if somebody was like, I got a great idea, let's go to brunch. I would say, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then uh, I, I think we should stop seeing each other. Wow. And my wife and I actually on weekends, we tend to go eat Thai food or Vietnamese food or like any usually ethnic food that does not have a brunch component because those restaurants are empty. And I might also plan to be a non-drinker. Right, right. For a lot of people, brunch is an excuse to drink. Yes, that's true. At like 11 a.m., right? Yeah. It would be relatively unacceptable to like go to a Thai restaurant and get like a beer, right? You'd be like, you're having a beer? It's like 1130 in the morning. But if you're at brunch, you can have a mimosa. You can have like a right. bloody dairy. Yeah. If that's your thing, like that's fine to each his own. But to me, it's really like when I drive by a place and there's just like 50 people standing outside waiting for the 10 tables. I just think like there's got to be a better way to spend your Saturday. There's just there's just got to be a better way. Other things you could be doing. But that's also just how my brain works. So if that's what people get into, like, you know, whatever, man, it's more power. Well, Ben, I got to say our brains work very similarly because. Whoa, these are two guys who hate brunch. <laughs> I agree in so many levels. I feel like eggs are like one of the cheapest things you can buy. Yes, yes. But you're going to go to this place and pay $20 for eggs and a piece of bread and coffee, you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it is mind boggling, especially in these kind of cities, like Ben said, where there's like there's these small restaurants, people wait so long. And then, you know, you have people hovering over you. You can't relax. I really totally agree with everything you said. I've also noticed that some brunch places will put out like the complimentary coffee for people that are waiting or right in line. Yeah. They'll like you can get it and then they'll charge you for it when you sit down or whatever. Well, that just means that you've had like five cups of like rocket fuel coffee on an empty stomach. And then that just supercharges my anxiety yep. and my aggression around people who are not recognizing that. Because in my mind, I also go to like everybody in here sitting down who's already eaten knows there's 50 people waiting outside. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, they're intentionally not leaving to fuck with me, you know? Right, 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 right. More times than not, that's not the case, but I can't help my brain from going there, you know? I get it. Vanessa, are you on the dark side with me and Ben or you love brunch? I love brunch. <laughs> Breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. I'll pay any price. <laughs> and I will say like the drinking element is never... A thing for me with brunch because not to brag, but I do have pretty bad acid reflux <laughs> and the breakfast drinks like mimosas, orange juice. Give me a break with that acid. And then even worse, Bloody Mary's. <laughs> I mean, as someone with acid reflux, I can't have tomato based broths or drinks. So the drink element is not like a thing for me. I know some people... I guess you were more complaining about other people's behavior when they're like drinking and stuff at brunch and whatever. But like, I'm trying to figure out a way to not make this super boring, but I don't drink at brunch, but I do love to have nonstop coffees. When the coffee's free refills, that's a lot of fun for me. Again, not great for my acid reflux, but how can I talk to you guys about how much I love brunch without getting so into acid reflux? <laughs> Here's what my friends and I do. Okay. Especially my friends from growing up and we've done this not to bring things full circle, many times in Chicago. When my friend Kitty and I both lived in Chicago, our other friends, Ariel, Lissy, Gwen, and Jenny would come in town. We would go out to brunch. We would order six different things. And then every so often we'd be like, 
pass and we would pass the plate to your neighbor and you try that thing. And honestly, this only works if you get savory and sweet things. But I guess my point is just, I'm sorry, I feel like I got like too excited to like counter you guys on like all your brunch hate with like my brunch love. But it's so fun. You know what else I love to do? I love to get pancakes for the table. Okay. Pancakes for the table. I'm pro getting anything for the table. Because when you order things for the table, you can order garbage food. Yes. That you would feel horrible ordering just on your own. And pancakes don't fall in that category. But like, if you're like, let's get like the fried Cajun onion rings for the table. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like mozzarella sticks. Yeah. You can do that and then not feel bad about being the one that ordered them because you're ordering them for everybody, even if you're the only one that wants them. Yeah. It can be a real dangerous thing when you're the one who orders them because you're like the one who's the most laser focused on eating. But I feel like brunch is a great opportunity to quote unquote order for the table. And then also there's so many fun foods for brunch and nothing's like really that expensive. Although I hear what you're saying, like eggs on their own are so cheap that like, you know, paying X amount of dollars for like an omelet, you're like, the markup on this is still incredibly high. But I will just say, I'm so happy that we can all be friends despite having really different takes on brunch. And by the way, something that I've always noticed but has never bothered me, but you guys are so right about is the fact that when you do go to like a little brunch place and you wait forever, when you sit down, you do really notice all the people that are like waiting to eat. And that is something that's never really bothered me that much. But you're right. That is sort of like an upsetting thing to be like, people just want me to like finish and get up so they can have my seat. I'm going to clarify a few things. I love brunch food. Yeah. Right, right, food right, right, right. Wonderful. It's really just the experience of trying to get to the table. Yes. This plays 100% into my impatience and anxiety. I think maybe a solution for this would be like, people would probably not want to go to this restaurant if this were the case. But if you were at a brunch spot and they were like, You sat down at the table and they put like an egg timer like on the table and like you will have this table for the next hour. Right. Or 45 minutes or whatever. And then when this thing goes off, we're going to have to clear the table. You know, I have a lot of friends who work in service industry, as I'm sure you guys do as well. And I think one thing that was kind of great during the pandemic, well, I guess we're still in the pandemic, but in the depths of the pandemic was that they needed to turn tables over because they only had so many tables, right? If there was right. a restaurant that normally sat 20, now it sits 10 because you're putting a table in between everybody. Right, exactly. Yeah. What they actually did or didn't do is a whole nother story. And I remember going to a restaurant and somebody being like, okay, um, at 7 p.m. we need this table. And I was like, totally great. Yeah. In that you are informing me that I have X amount of time and that you will assure me that the food gets here in enough time to eat it. Yes. In this time period. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that I felt we should have carried over from the depths of the pandemic, which was like this idea that you can go to a restaurant and just like sit there as long as you want and you have wait staff kind of passive aggressively be like, is there anything else I can get you? Right, right, right. right. Another thing, what they're really asking you is like, I need you to leave. We need to turn this table over or we need to go home. And you guys are really camping out here. Maybe that's the solution to me finding my way back into brunch is like, if we can be assured that people are only allowed so much time on a table, that will allow for more turnover. And then you can kind of get a better sense of like, oh, there's five tables. They're all going to be done here in a half hour. So if you put your name and come back in 45 minutes and then your table will be ready. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, this was two nostalgias and one yes-stalgia for brunch. But we also kind of fixed brunch. (laughs) I think that's the solution. You know, something needs to be done about the brunch industrial complex. Totally. It's just become too powerful. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's time to regulate it. This is a great solution, I think. When I say we, really, Ben, you're the one who came <laughs> up with the solution. You make a commitment to the brunch place and they make a commitment to you. We're all going to respect each other's time and make it a great experience for everyone. And with that said, we should probably wrap things up. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I would say is, yeah, this really brings a full circle to our brunch. Our oh, to brunch. our brunch in Chicago. Yeah. In Chicago. If only we had known like 10 years later, we're going to have this really long conversation where we figure out brunch. Anything that bothered us that day, we will eventually figure out. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning that I am 45 years old, maybe not <laughs> in the right demographic for brunch, you know? So... There was a time, obviously, in my life, as evidenced by the fact that we had brunch together, <laughs> that I was cool with it. And over time, I got older and more curmudgeonly and more Larry Davidy. And all of a sudden, now I refuse to go to brunch. With well, you. well, at least you're not emailing your local coffee chain <laughs> and asking for menu clarifications. So you still got a ways to go to catch up with to me. To be fair, at least you're not looking, <laughs> emailing. Yeah, your local coffee chain and acting like your national coffee chain is a local coffee chain. Okay, I wish I hadn't added that. But <laughs> it is odd, though, right? How, like, across advertising for chain restaurants and coffee shops and whatever, they're really trying to sell us this idea that, like, your local Dunkin' is like, yes, just like your local coffee shop. You know, it's just like a mom and pop <laughs> kind of place. You go in there, yeah. you put everybody in there. <laughs> Well, Jonah kind of got swept up in that, I think, because that's why I think he like got in touch with them to be like, I'd like you to bring back this sandwich or whatever. And they were like, actually, it's not our decision. No, they didn't write me back. Oh, they didn't write you back. Okay. For the record, I just figured that out later in my own research in my personal time. Okay. Well, we all have to do our own research these days. You know, kind of part of living in this era. Yes. Thank you for validating that, Ben. Well, Ben, where can people find you? I mean, I think we kind of know, but just for anybody who's living in a cave out there. You can find me haunting the streets of Seattle, <laughs> Washington on any given day. I am on Instagram, although I post very infrequently at Gibstack, but that's also where a lot of band information and show stuff goes to. So yeah, I'm just, I'm around, I'm around places. Great. Yeah. Look for Ben at your local third wave coffee shop, probably, huh? Yes. Yeah. Asking where the beans are sourced from. <laughs> yeah. And if they're going to turn them into jelly beans anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us and to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed that, please subscribe to the podcast and keep an eye out for next week's episode of How Did We Get Weird, where we will discuss more stories from our childhood and cultural milestones like taping songs off the radio. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.